Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show again, of course, taping off uh, the campus at U of T, but you never know. We may be back there soon at CIT 89.5 FM. Meanwhile, uh, we continue apace here on the show and love to get your feedback, by the way. So please continue to give it. Always respond to anything coming through Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Not on TikTok yet, but you know never ever know. And of course, we continue to bring you guests that you're not going to hear anywhere else on mainstream media. And today on our faith show, that's the case. Our first guest is Tom McKechnie, Thomas McKechnie, and he's an organizer for Foodster United. And they've had some great news just recently. I'm going to allow him to talk about that. They're a division of Cup W. And also he's an award-winning playwright, as well as a member of Trinity St. Paul's, which, you know, I'm the minister at, among many. So, Thomas, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the good news. What just happened? Yeah. So, I, as you said, I uh, organized with a group called Foodsters United, um, which is a group of Fudora couriers who have been working uh, to um, bring a sort of um, paradigm shifting um, collective bargaining agreement to uh, the app-based careers, food careers for the company Foodora. Um, or we were up until April 24th when Foodora um, uh, left um, the sort of closed all Canadian operations and left. Um, uh, this left uh, a lot of workers uh, obviously sort of wondering what, what their next steps were going to be. Um, in this sort of like moment of global pandemic when there was so much uncertainty uh, and so much struggle around and so many people had so many questions. Uh, and so the uh, Food Solutions United kept sort of working and kept organizing both to help folks um, get the things that they needed for the sort of help them get through the crisis um, in the form of like deliveries of groceries and, um, and, and small sort of gifts of cash and things like this, just like the stuff you need to get through. Um, but then also continue to um, to sort of be in touch with the company and uh, our legal team and sort of exploring the various avenues that we could to um, pursue a kind of restitution that felt fair. Um, and after um, a uh, an a sort of overwhelming vote from the, from the members of the union um, to accept an offered deal from Fedora, um, we came to an agreement where uh, uh, Fedora would pay $3.46 million uh, to the couriers um, uh, that it had employed and how essentially how it breaks down is that, um, couriers will be paid, um, equal, like as is sort of similar to, um, the amount that they would have earned in the, in the months leading up to Fedora's announcement that it was pulling out. Um, and so people who were working just a bit would receive just a bit of money and people who were working full time would receive sort of full time kind of money. Uh, and this is sort of in recognition of the fact that, uh, the business closed and that many of these people were depending on this income. And so it sort of look, it breaks down as about essentially 16 weeks of income um, for each career, uh, which allows, um, uh, which sort of like, you know, um, represents the sort of severance um, and the sort of lo loss of income when Fedora chose to uh, close their operations here. 
Now, you're also an artist. You're a playwright and uh, you've got that whole other life as well. Uh, and, and that is, to say the least, precarious now since COVID. Uh, so so this settlement is good for about four months. Um, you and other actors that have been involved, uh, do you know, uh, do, have most people been able to, get, to access CERB as well? Um, many people have been able to access CERB, um, and part of that, uh, especially and, and part of that, especially among the sort of union, has been based on the work that other, that um, uh, various workers have been doing to sort of agitate um, the as the federal government was sort of unveiling this program. Um, there was organized work from within the union to push the program in a number of different directions, and one of them was to push it to include gig workers um, uh, and to ensure that we were sort of explicitly included in these sorts of operations. Um, because we are, it is quite a precarious workforce and because lots of people are quite concerned about taking benefits they don't deserve, um, it was really important that it was very um, explicit that this was for gig workers. And so, uh, yeah, some people, have met, many of the workers have managed to get on to serve uh, and that's been good for them. And especially once one of the other sort of things that the union and um, the NDP, among others, sort of pushed for was an income extension so that you can earn that uh, an extra thousand dollars on top of the two thousand that you were served, received from the CERB which is essential because $2,000 is not a lot of money in downtown Toronto, especially if you're the breadwinner of a family or if you have like multiple dependents. Uh, and so that, so yeah, so many folks are collecting CERB, many folks are collecting CERB and still working. Um, and then some folks, um, one of the sort of uh, challenges of the system or ways that the system um, 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 is challenging is that folks who are um, um, uh, not, because you use a SIN number to process uh, CERB, um, you, you're required to have sort of up-to-date um, sort of citizenship um, uh, status if you want to receive the program. Uh, and the thing about Fudora was that it was a place where folks who did not have status could work, as opposed to many of the other companies that sort of check that kind of, um, sort of explicitly check that kind of status. Um, and so there are lots of people who were, were working for Fudora who still don't have a lot of options. They can't necessarily go anywhere else and sort of stuck. And so we're working really hard to make sure that everyone can like, you know, keep the rent paid and keep food on the table. Um, but it is still not everyone's, we're, we're, as you said, we are a precarious workforce. Yeah. And by the way, um, just huge congratulations. This is a momentous victory for Foodsters and Cup W as well. And for you um, and everyone else that was you know, helping to organize this campaign. This is part of the whole big world of the gig economy. Talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, the basic struggle has been to see gig economy workers as workers and not independent contractors. And, you know, before gig economy was, a you know, a phrase, um, I remember back in the day where, you know, this kind of negotiating by companies for, say, folk who did, you know, office cleaning, um, to make them independent contractors so they you know, didn't have to pay benefits, et cetera, et cetera, was already mm -hmm. a thing and already a struggle in the workplace. So, so maybe like just you know, talk to our listeners about what successes have happened in the gig economy and what really needs to happen. The gig economy is, as you say, a sort of like hyper um, exploitation of the idea of misclassifying people as independent contractors, which is an idea which has been popular has been more and more popular in sort of um, the industries in general over the last couple of decades. It's part of the sort of neoliberal turn away from um, any kind of um, sort of consistency or collection or like connection to any sort of broader um, uh, sort of social society or social safety net. The idea is you're trying to sever, you can save money by taking people, taking people sort of basic benefits and health benefits um, 
and things like vacation and overtime away by saying that they're not technically employees, they're technically running a small business. And the thing about that is that it's such a um, such a bogus argument that is like mostly fed on ideology. And so like all of the work that we've done has mostly just been to sort of clearly point out how the stories that that these tech companies have been telling and sort of larger, like in a, in a broader way, neoliberal capitalist thinkers have been telling about what a worker is and what its relationship to a company is. So the big thing about this is, is that the app-based companies allow people to more easily become independent contractors. I'm putting big old air quotes on independent contractors. And that's why it has sort of led to this like ex explosion of exploitation in this way. Um, that, um, but essentially the important thing, what I really like is there's been um, uh, a law coming out of California that's been pushed against uh, Uber and Lyft. And they as companies have been hating it, um, but organized uh, drivers have been bringing this, has, has been sort of bringing this to the forefront. And the, the definition that this new law of California uses is that like, um, if the work that is being done is the sort of majority thing of your business, um, like if you could not, if your business could not function without this work, then that work cannot be assigned to an independent contractor. For instance, Foodora is a food delivery company. If they had no food deliverers, they would have no, like the company wouldn't work. Now they could hire like, hired a graphic designer to make a cool logo for them. They could hire them as an independent contractor because you don't need that logo. They're just hoping that logo would generate some money. And so the idea here is to break, the idea of using this misclassification uh, is to sort of break as many sort of bonds and responsibilities that owners have to workers uh, as possible. And the idea is to disempower workers and to break them off into little atomized little units. And so what's so essential about the work that is so essential and so exciting about the work Boosters United campaign has done is that we've like just really like pointed out the sort of obvious lie of like the person bringing you your tacos is not a small business person. They are not running a small taco delivery person. They're just a guy with a backpack and a bicycle. Like they work for a company, they deliver food. Like sure, it's easier to swap shifts and you can stop working when you want to. And it's more sort of like demand-based, but like, you know, if anyone who's worked in a restaurant knows that you can call someone an hour before your shift starts and switch it out. Like it's not that different. Um, and so the sort of supposed flexibility um, is not is that is not that special or like not the outside of the purview of workers. What you are what's, what you're signing up for in these things is just sort of giving up basic rights. Um, and so that's what I think is like so exciting about this campaign is just sort of reminding folks that they deserve better, that they deserve rights, they deserve to be protected if they get hurt, they deserve um, to be able, like, be able to come together, they deserve to have, um, uh, you know, um, they deserve to be rewarded for sort of loyalty and sticking with the company, like they deserve. Um, and so that's, um, so we had an earlier, a sort of a legal, a real legal victory earlier this spring, which was quite exciting, which was the announcement from the Ontario Labor Relations Board that we were not independent contractors, that we were dependent contractors. Um, uh, dependent contractors is a sort of, um, uh, classification that came into, came into, um, labor law a couple of years, but with the last of the re labor reforms that the Kathleen Wynne government brought in before they, uh, before they fell. Um, this creation of this, uh, this space, which is sort of like between an independent contractor and a worker, recognizes that they are less, you know, they aren't the sort of, it isn't a nine to five, no, Monday to Friday kind of worker, but it's also not, you're not running a small business. Um, and so we were um, designated as dependent contractors um, and thus sort of had the right to form a union and had the right to ask for things like vacation pay and overtime and et cetera. Um, and so that was a really big thing because no one had ever taken a group of app based workers all the way 
through the process like that before. And so like, there's been a number of major victories in that camp- in this campaign, and I feel super excited about all of them and what they point to. Speaking to uh, Tom McKechnie, organizer uh, with Foodsters United, a division of Cup W, and just won a success uh, through the court system and a settlement from Fedora. So again, congratulations. Do we need that kind of California law here in Ontario? I think so. And I think that like, like that you need, because it's so, um, it seems so rudimentary and so basic that what it like the fact that we don't have these kinds of um, laws in place is just about like a real anti-worker bias that has been in our legislation process for, for decades at this point, because it's not just like, and, and, and before people will sort of dismiss this as a problem of like, you know, downtown people, right. And bike couriers riding, um, delivering sandwiches or something like that. Not only are folks building their whole sort of like lives and occupations doing these jobs, but also these sort of misclassifications are being used to exploit people in lumber industries, in mining industries, like all over the economy of this uh, province, people are being um, uh, misclassified and denied the basics of their own life. Um, and so, yeah, like this is a sort of, I keep, I don't know, I'm feeling a bit snarky about this at some, at some point, but I just, I feel like we have done so much work that we shouldn't have had to do to prove the validity of our own existence that like we need the lawmakers in this province, in this country, in this city to step up and help us do some of these things because we can't fix every problem in society by forcing it through the courts. Like we have, there has to be some proactive recognition that there are problems that we need to address the needs of workers and not just the needs of bosses. Uh, so where to from here for you? Are you going to be going back into the gig work economy or what? Of course, of course. Um, still got to pay my rent and um, and bike couriering is a way that I can do it in a way that I can sort of make it work in a lot of different ways. I think, yeah, so gig economy work, yes. Gig economy organizing, also yes. <laughs> Which is wonderful. We don't have a lot of time, so I just want to switch now gears a little bit and talk about, because this is the faith show, what's faith got to do with it? You, you identify as a Christian what does that mean in relationship to your anti-capitalist work in relation to your union work? What does that mean? Yeah. Um, for me, it's the recognition that there is a, um, I'll pause quickly and say, I, I find sometimes that history is as important, both like politically and spiritually to me um, as any kind of like, it can be more useful sort of politically. Um, than lots of theory work is just sort of understanding what has happened. And I think that when I think about people like the diggers, um, who I don't know if you're familiar with the diggers, but they were this group. Of course, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the diggers, for those at home, uh, were this group of uh, like 12th century English radicals who, while the sort of early capitalists and the sort of early state uh, forces were trying to enclose the land and say, this land belongs to this noble and this land belongs to this noble, we're sort of pushing back against that and saying the land belongs to all people. And sort of learning about these people, I recognize that there has been a great struggle throughout all human history towards love and towards justice, and that we have always sought to try to make the world that we live in better. And that I have, and that I sort of recognize that that spirit is gone, and that that's what it like that we are that all of us here together are part of something so much larger than ourselves, and that the sort of like I don't know egoistic, individualistic, capitalistic way of thinking about the world will not get us out of sort of the uh, the capitalist world that we're in. We need, to, we need to think about ourselves as a part of a larger thing. And that thing that I think of myself as a part of a larger event uh, is God. Um, and it came up in the Christian tradition, which is part of why I'm sort of maintained in the Christian tradition now. But I just think that, I don't know, there's, he was such a wonderful, like, I don't know, like, 
anarchist or something like he was just there saying that we don't need to live like this that we can live um together with each other and that there's uh, i just it gives me such strength to think that the swallows get taken care of um that like there is this out this great outpouring of love there is this great benevolence there is this great um you know you a, a phrase that you have used to describe it before was like that you are you're deeply beloved um and that part of how capitalism works is it tries to destroy us spiritually so that we have nothing, so we can't give ourselves to each other. That we have to be like, like grasping and, and, and selfish and, and greedy with a little bit of spirit and a little bit of energy so that we can survive. And I think that there is something um, profoundly like, you know, dangerous in the best way about, about Jesus's message, you know, um, the, the feeding of the 5,000 where he said like, look, you do a little bit, you put a little bit together, you have a little bit of faith in this thing, I will be, you can beat all of us. You can do all of it. And this, I don't know, it gives me such strength, such strength to recognize um, that there have always been um, these beautiful, I would say queer figures throughout history who have said like, this is, this silly way you are living together is, needs to stop we're not doing this anymore we're gonna we are gonna love each other and we're gonna take care of each other and the world will grow bountiful um and that those figures have always brought us like closer and closer to this sort of like i don't know jerusalem in the sort of mythic beautifully put it i'm sorry i had to cut you short we're just running out of time on the radical reverend show today but thank you so much been speaking to thomas mckechnie from Foodsters United Division of Cup W on their successful campaign and court action to get, uh, you know, some justice for workers. So thank you very much, Thomas. Uh, take care. Thank you, Jack. Uh, and just to uh, introduce for the moment, um, our next speaker uh, is the keynote at the Christian Left Conference that if you want to, uh, you know, catch up on it, it's on YouTube. So the Christian Left Conference, first of its kind, I gather in North America. Uh, we held it here in Toronto just a couple of weeks back. And Jorg Rieger, Professor Jorg Rieger was the keynote. Uh, this is a speech that he gave um, uh, just uh, as we opened the Christian Left Conference. To know about him is to know that he's the Chancellor's Chair in Wesleyan Studies and Distinguished Professor of Theology at the Divinity School in the Graduate Program of Religion at Vanderbilt University. Uh, so listen in as Professor Rieger uh, regales us at the very first Christian Left Conference, and hopefully this makes you want to check out the rest of it. Thanks so much, and again, always love to hear from you on the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for this introduction, Sherry. It's, it's great to be with everybody. I've been looking forward to this because uh, this is such an important conference. I want to start my presentation with a quote. I have seen this quote attributed to Che Guevara, but it's not clear whether he actually said it or not. Nevertheless, I consider it a good nature jab that could have come from anyone who is friendly to the left. So here it goes. When the American left is asked to form a firing squad, it gets into a circle. No matter whether Che Guevara now said it or not, there is some truth to this statement. We know that the American right has worked hard to pull together and to build united fronts using all kinds of tools and tricks that I would not necessarily recommend. The American left, on the other hand, is hardly unified at this point. Some on the left are just doing their own thing. In other cases, there is active combat going on. 
mechanisms employed are wide ranging, including so-called cancel culture, as well as perhaps less harmful, but still hurtful practices of calling each other out rather than in. The measuring stick is sometimes characterized as political correctness. Before I move on, allow me to clarify what I'm not saying in this presentation. First, I'm not saying that disagreements among the left are necessarily detrimental or that disagreements necessarily amount to firing squads. Second, I'm not saying that the left needs to give up its deep appreciation for diversity and difference. After all, this is one thing that distinguishes the left from the right, and we need to keep it that way. Finally, before anyone suspects me of condemning political correctness, let me note that I'm not calling into question the need for succinct political commitments and positions. Neither am I questioning the need for taking clear stains. What makes the left the left are to a large degree certain political commitments, especially its unwavering commitment to take a stand against structural injustices. Those, uh, of course, all uh, include uh, injustices along the lines of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and last but not least, also class. This commitment to take a stand against structural injustices is also what makes the Christian left the Christian left. What I'm saying is simply that we need to rethink once in a while that political correctness uh, entails various things and perhaps we need to overhaul our principles once in a while, but that's normal. So what is going on with these so-called circular firing squads on the left and what do we do about them? There are two responses that are quite common, but I do not consider either one of them to be helpful. First, the so-called circular firing squads of the left are often criticized by centrists. Centrists seek to solve the problem by finding the lowest common denominator, that's a common practice, I would say, or by assuming that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. If this is the case, anyone who is not in the middle can be quickly dismissed. And this is what happens uh, oftentimes, especially when you find yourself on the left. If you're on the left and you don't favor a middle road, there must be something wrong with you from a centrist perspective. The second response to the circular firing squads on the left has its own problems. This response seeks a kind of unity on the left that tries to make everyone the same and impose acceptance of the same categorical uh, categories and points of view. This happens, for instance, where the old oppression of Olympics game is played. Here, a singular category of oppression trumps all other categories or seeks to displace them. Let me just say at this point that reductionism cannot be the way to unify the left, including the Christian left. In this presentation, my goal is to investigate if there are other ways to bring together the left, including the Christian left. Before I go on, however, let me add one more comment on the middle road. This is an old German saying, um, by the 16th century poet uh, Friedrich von Logau, and he offers this warning. In German, in Gefahr und großer Not bringt der Mittelweg den Tod, or translated, in danger and dire straits, the middle road leads to death. If there ever was a time that presented 
dangers and dire straits it is now. The future of humanity as well as the future of the planet as a whole hangs in the balance. If anything, COVID-19 has alerted us again to this reality as it disproportionately affects those who have been marginalized by the structures of race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, and class. So we're not arguing for a middle road. There's something more interesting out there, and that's what I want to talk about this afternoon. An old principle of the left is that if a problem cannot be resolved conceptually, it helps to develop a historical perspective. In other words, don't just sit there and think, pay attention to what is really going on. Let's take a look at some of the historical developments and see if this might help us address our problem. In what follows, I'm going to address the Christian left in the United States. I'm doing that not because I'm US centric, but because whenever I lecture outside of the United States, I feel it's more helpful to illustrate things by drawing on the struggles located where I find myself. In this way, I'm not lecturing you about your context and what you need to do, but I'm inviting a conversation in which your experiences help to throw some light on my context and my experiences might help to throw some light on yours. Now, when traveling around the world, uh, today, I guess, uh, it's been reduced to zooming around the globe. Uh, when we're doing that, when I'm doing that, uh, people are oftentimes surprised that there is actually a Christian left in the United States. In fact, some US residents might be just as surprised as you are, as the Christian press has not been getting, as the Christian left has not been getting much press. This is one of the reasons why several years ago, my colleague Kwok Poulan and I decided to write a book about uh, what was then called the Occupy Wall Street Movement, published in 2012, uh, simply because uh, even when Occupy Wall Street happened, there was a lot of conversation about everything and anything, but not about religion. And so even when the religious left is getting some press, it's usually classified as left, but not as religious and certainly not as Christian. But the truth often repressed is that the history of the United States, a country like the United States, cannot be conceived without what some have called progressive Christianity and that I would like to call today the Christian left. Take a look at the next slide, which contains a list of various crucial movements in US history. And I'm sure uh, you have heard about them all, abolitionism, suffragism, civil rights, eco-justice, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, the labor movement, and socialism. When any of these movements are, mem are remembered or mentioned, how do you think their history is told? What do we make of the fact that religion played a role? Uh, that's the history that's usually not told. What do we make of the fact though that religion was not only um, one of many things in these movements, but oftentimes central and crucial in what happened? What do we make of the fact uh, that this is not uh, reflected today uh, by, by most people? Of course, uh, we could talk about each of these movements and you will know that each of them has shaped US history in significant and lasting ways. Just want to mention the example of the labor movement. The things that we now for, take for granted, like 
eight hour work days, the end of child labor, protection for women, pension plans, healthcare plans. All of those were initially fought by the labor movement and also won. This is why if you enjoy having a weekend off work, you might think the labor movement. But what comes as a surprise today is that unlike today, back then, many of the mainline churches were supportive of these labor struggles as well. And so back then, maybe a hundred years ago, there were much greater sympathies for the religious left than they are now today. This is just a very brief overview, but it gives you an idea that the Christian left in the United States has always been diverse and varied like the left in general. In the midst of this, various socialisms also have left their mark and many of them found religious support. This is one big difference compared to Europe, mind you. Their religion was so closely linked to the dominant status quo that working people needed to emancipate themselves in the United States, on the other hand, religion was more diverse and allowed for different expressions. If in Europe, the critique of religion often meant the rejection of religion, in the United States, the critique of religion could mean the re rejection of dominant religion and the embrace of alternative religious expressions, even within Christianity. Examples include various Anabaptist developments growing out of the left wing of the German Reformation, the so-called free Methodists in the United States, early Pentecostal dynamics, and always the minority traditions such as the black churches. Many of these developments were tied not to utopian socialisms, but to working people coming together and organizing. While utopian socialists in the 19th century established communities all over the United States and the continent, these communities rarely lasted for long. On the other hand, the spectrum, on the other hand of that spectrum was a budding labor movement that began to make history. This movement attracted the interest and support of people who are not often named in the same breath, such as Karl Marx and Abraham Lincoln. Neither Marx nor Lincoln had much of an interest in utopian socialism, but both understood the primacy of labor over capital. This is an insight we might be reclaiming today when COVID-19 has made us aware that none of us can survive without what we're now calling essential workers. Even though people might actually survive without certain handlers of capital, I would add. Note that both Marx and Lincoln were quite clear about the benefit of labor unions. Moreover, both celebrated and welcomed the fact that the emerging working class in the United States was interracial. In 1864, in a letter to Lincoln, Marx famous wrote the quote that you see on your screen, labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin where in the black it is branded. The record shows that Lincoln actually responded positively to Marx's letter. So there was some correspondence uh, between American presidents uh, and socialists in other parts of the world. This points, among other things, to a long history of concern for the relation of race and class on the left, including the Christian left. Unfortunately, that is oftentimes forgotten today. While the emancipation of the slaves was a matter of life and death for those enslaved, 
Don't forget, it also signaled a broader emancipation of working people everywhere, even though they did not always realize it. As Frederick Douglass noted, the slave is robbed by his master of all his earnings above what is required for his physical necessities, while the white man is robbed by the slave system because he is flung into competition with a class of laborers who work without wages. Southern white workers did in fact not only earn less than Northern white workers, they also made less than Northern black workers. So slavery ultimately uh, what Douglas uh, as well uh, as some of the others were saying hurts everybody. Of course it hurts the slaves more and more seriously, but everybody's affected. Put the other way around, enslavement of African-Americans in the United States um, then did a tremendous amount of damage that affected larger people, uh, larger numbers of people than typically realized. According to a recent argument uh, that was just made in the New York Times a few months ago, capitalism in the United States is so harsh in its treatment of working people and perhaps even of its treatment of the environment because it developed in the context of African-American slavery. So slavery here uh, goes deep and it does hurt everybody. I wish there were more time to present the development of the Christian left in detail. It is a fascinating history that's much more intersectional than most people realize. In many ways, the concerns of gender, race, and class came together organically in this history, even though, of course, never completely without tension. We're not trying to romanticize these days. Keep in mind also that the history of the Christian left in the United States is not predominantly the history of white American males, as is often suspected. In the history of the Christian left in the United States, primary agents have oftentimes been women, African Americans, and other minorities. Female African American civil rights leaders deserve a special place in this history because they brought together the concerns of race, gender, and class right there. And then their names include Nanny Helen Burroughs, Ella Baker, and Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, there are many others, but you see what I'm talking about. Let me emphasize here, especially that the Christian left cannot be conceived without the African American traditions, even though the history, of course, is complex. For the most part, solidarity, therefore, was more than just an idea in the history of the Christian left. It was embodied by all those who, who stood shoulder to shoulder in the fight for transformation. Without this kind of solidarity, many of the battles would not have been won. In Frederick Douglass's famous words, which you probably have seen in other places, power concedes nothing without a demand. And that demand, I would add, needs to take the forms of a serious push. Those who think that a few courageous voices speaking truth to power are enough may find that at the end of the day, they may well have the truth, but those in power still have the power. So we need to organize and we need to talk about solidarity. When we talk about solidarity, I've noticed that the notion is getting a bit of a bad rap lately. And so it will take some time to sort through that and to see what it might actually be doing for us. 
One of the concerns about the notion of solidarity is that it demands a false unity that forces everyone to walk in lockstep. Solidarity apparently makes people look alike uh, and forgets about diversity. Still, as noted earlier, I stick to my guns and I'll argue that neither centrism nor reductionism will do. Neither one will provide us with the solidarity the left needs. To repeat what I said in the beginning, true solidarity cannot be built on the lowest, uh, lowest common denominator or on any kind of reductionism. It might be possible, of course, that solidarity is overrated. I'm pretty sure that the status quo feels this way. If you think from the perspective of the dominant system, it's always easier to negotiate with a few people and admit them into the system than to have the whole system challenged. Moreover, the dominant system has no trouble celebrating diversity if those to be celebrated are in the minority rather than in the majority. Without broad-based solidarity, the system is only ever forced to deal with minorities, which are easier to handle than majorities, especially when they can be divided against each other. So who really benefits when solidarity is done away with and who loses? Since the powers that be are not interested in the solidarity of the masses, they devised ways that allow them to deal with smaller units which they can handle. Professionalism is a case in point. Professional virtues can be adapted to serve the powers that be because they promise certain people a place in the system in exchange for not rocking the boat. Even well-meaning tasks of inclusion and hospitality can point in that direction. It is easy for the powers that be to be inclusive and hospitable when they own the house where hospitality is offered and when they control the system into which minorities are supposedly included. So we need to do something more than that, but how do we reclaim solidarity? First, I think we can illustrate this by talking about solidarity gone wrong, beginning with the political right, which is, as you know, closely aligned with the Christian right. What is it that unites, what is it that unites right-wing perspectives? Figuring out how the right produces solidarity is crucial because it helps the left realize what it is up against, and it can help to understand better the deeply problematic forms of solidarity. So when I say solidarity, this is what I'm not talking about. Uh, this is the problematic forms of solidarity. The first example of solidarity gone wrong is the old divide and conquer method on which the right has always thrived for thousands of years and certainly in this country since its beginnings. This method produces an odd solidarity on the right. Divide and conquer is particularly useful if you can divide the people who actually make up the majority in this country, namely the working class. Don't forget that approximately two thirds of the US population belong to the working class. That is, if you define the working class as people who have fairly little power over their own work. That includes a lot of people. And if you can divide white, black, and Latinx workers, if you can divide male, female, and queer workers, you have made substantial progress because then you only ever need to deal with minorities. We're finding out today how well this is working in the United States. 
and it is scary. By the way, divide and conquer also works beautifully in churches. If you can divide male, female, and queer Christians, you can then divide, sorry, uh, if you can divide male, female, and queer Christians, you can then define and control the meaning of Christianity, you might call it orthodoxy. But there is another strategy on the right that is just as powerful. I've come to call it unite and conquer. This is the foundation of the so-called Southern strategy in the United States that has been powerfully employed in Southern politics since the 1960s. And this is what Donald Trump is using to great success right now. Here, white supremacy and white racism are employed to unite wealthy whites and not so wealthy whites with the goal to conquer. But can you guess what is being conquered here? Of course, white supremacy effectively conquers both racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. But there is something else that is usually overlooked. White supremacy also conquers working and even middle-class white people. How is that possible, you might wonder? Don't all white people benefit from white supremacy? Of course, uh, white people benefit from white supremacy, but white supremacy conquers working and middle-class white people by making them believe that they have more in common with their white superiors than with their fellow black and brown working and middle-class comrades. Can you guess who benefits from that kind of white solidarity? In the 1930s, W.E.B. Du Bois once again pointed out the connections of race and class in the United States, the ones that Karl Marx and Frederick Douglass had observed earlier. Racism, Du Bois said, not only meant that black people could be enslaved and exploited, but that wages for white people could, kept, could be kept low as well. And don't just think about wages, think about power also. So what needs to be done in response to these utterly distorted forms of solidarity? A first step is to, to address the time-honored unite and conquer method. The problem is summarized by African-American historian Barbara Fields. She notes that the question is not white supremacy in general, but which whites would be supreme. She writes, and I quote, not all white people have the same power and not all white people are in the same class position. Here, I would argue, we need to make a distinction between privilege and power that is oftentimes overlooked. Under the conditions of white supremacy, all white people have privilege, whether they realize it or not. Racial privilege conveys many advantages in the dominant system, and it is a systemic issue. I think this is what we have been learning today with new urgency and COVID-19 has opened our eyes once again a little bit more to that reality. That's white supremacy, but don't forget that power is also a systemic issue. And even though all white people benefit in some ways from white racial privilege, they don't all have the same power. White warehouse workers enjoy white privilege when compared to black and brown warehouse workers, but they do not have the same power, economic, political, cultural, than white warehouse owners. And they certainly don't have the same power than the billionaire heirs of Sam Walton. 
this insight can, can come as a rude awakening, not only to white working people, but also to white professionals and white theology professors who certainly enjoy a great deal of white privilege and even some power, but whose power to truly shape the system is often surprisingly limited. Of course, the dominant system loves it when people confuse privilege and power. This is actually a trick that's being played on us. The white male straight middle-class Christian who is thinking that he can change the world because of his racial, gender, and sexual privilege is rarely much of a threat. Without solidarity, even the white middle class is left high and dry when it comes to its ability to run the world. And it is time that the white middle class realizes that it cannot change the world by itself. This insight alone will change the nature of activism in profound ways. Uh, and I'm hoping uh, that we may have a conversation about that at the end. So now, um, how can the left and especially the Christian left unite, having said all that? Being worried about the political and religious right unified by racism and sexism certainly helps. And Donald Trump has been a major help in making people worried. That sounds ironic, but it is true. Uh, there's some organizing going on. There's some new energy going on on the left, which is a good thing. But as bad as things are now, this is not enough. African-American studies professor Kianga Yamata-Taylor in her brilliant book From Black Lives Matter to Black, Lives Li uh, to Black Liberation talks about a potential for solidarity. And she says this potential for solidarity has to do with the fact that when one group of workers suffer oppression, it negatively affects all workers. There is, according to Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and I quote, a material foundation for solidarity and unity within the working class. There is, I repeat, a material foundation for solidarity and unity within the working class, which I believe uh, on the Christian left, we're oftentimes overlooking. I've dealt with this in my own writings uh, for several years, but it is a tough conversation to have. But let's talk about these material foundations for solidarity. Because what this means is that solidarity is not primarily merely a moral imperative for well-meaning people. The potential for solidarity is not a pious dream, but rooted in the realities of exploitation and oppression that affect the many, not just the few. Let me add that this was one of the lasting insights of the Occupy Wall Street movement's recognition of the difference between the proverbial 99% and the 1%. Taylor pushes the boundaries of progressive politics when she notes that the popular idea of white people becoming allies to black people, I quote, doesn't quite capture the degree to which black and white workers are inextricably linked. Let me repeat that. She observes that the popular idea of white people becoming allies to black people doesn't quite capture the degree to which black and white workers are inextricably linked. So there's something deeper at stake than merely being allies. I think I need to pause here for a minute as this is a lot to take in in a short amount of time. 
I also realized that what I'm saying here cuts against some of the pro popular progressive narratives, including the ones told by progressive Christians. In fact, many progressives, many progressive Christians might be worried that this kind of solidarity talk amounts to erasing the differences between black and white people, and it amounts to letting white people off the hook. Worse yet, such talk of solidarity might neglect the, deep, the deeply meaningful Christian processes of confession of sin and repentance for white racial privilege. I hope we can agree that erasing the differences between black and white and letting white people off the hook is not how solidarity is built. Erasing the differences between black and white and letting white people off the hook is not how solidarity is built. But in the process, we need to rethink the meaning of confession of sin and repentance for white racial privilege. Of course, confession and repentance can mean contrition, regret, and sorrow, but these attitudes are fairly meaningless without actively fighting sin and working towards liberation. I would argue that confession and repentance might indeed be practiced where white working people break the bonds of white supremacy by siding with their black and brown brothers and sisters and standing together, that's your solidarity, standing together against the dominant interests represented by the powers that be. I imagine that something like that happened in the Jesus movement as well. Remember, there's this awkward passage in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus talks about bringing struggle rather than peace. There's also passages in the prophet Jeremiah, who in two of the chapters of his book, chapter six and eight, talks about false peace. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So the kind of solidarity that I'm talking about here is not about letting anyone off the hook, and neither it is, is it about claiming sameness and identity. Members of the 99% are not all alike, and this would not even be desirable. Solidarity is grounded in the fact that the few are benefiting at the expense of the many, and that this can only be changed by the many, not by the few. So we need to figure out how to move from minority politics to a politics that actually brings together the majority of people who are not benefiting from this system anymore. Now, it's this solidarity, I grant you, that may well be what capitalism is most worried about. What happens when the minorities and women it has been able to exploit so well over the years, speeding up the race to the bottom for everyone, what happens when they unite in some, sort, some form or fashion? Barbara Fields uh, once again helps us to see things more clearly when she says, when she points out, we're living in the midst of the most, un this is a quote from Barbara Fields from an interview two years ago. We're living in the midst of the most unrelenting and successful period of class warfare in American history. The targets are working people, all kinds of working people. And the more we allow ourselves to look away from structural political reasons for it, the more we're helping those who have their feet 
on our necks. While she said this about two years ago, I would say that COVID-19 is revealing this reality in even more dramatic ways today, as well as some of the other actions, uh, including the police actions against African-Americans in the United States that we have been seeing now for quite a while. But what's interesting to me in, in this way of thinking is that we need to be addressing the question of of social class, because without it, capitalism will continue to flourish, as will racism, sexism, heterosexism, with all detrimental consequences for everyone. So this is how things are ultimately connected. Now, reclaiming class in this context does not mean everybody look alike, or pretending that racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual differences do not matter anymore. Barbara Fields, one more time, helps us clarify the misunderstanding. This is uh, a bit of a quote I want to read here from Barbara Fields, um, African-American historian. When someone, she says, when someone in the press says working class or working class voters, they invariably mean white people. They forget that most African-Americans in this country are working people. Most Latinos, however you define that ambiguous term, are working people. Southeast Asian migrants, most of them are working people, and indeed the same is true of a good many East Asian migrants as well. Let me start summing up what I've been trying to say here. The solidarity which I'm suggesting in this presentation accomplishes two unexpected things. Not only is it built on the respect for differences, it also manages to employ differences for the common good. These differences can be multiple tied to race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, but they could also be tied to religion. So for the solidarity that we're talking about, differences are not only to be tolerated, they're absolutely necessary, and this is what makes all of us stronger. Intersectionality is crucial, but so is interreligious dialogue. That may be a paradox, but I think this is the crucial point here. Solidarity is not about sameness, marching in lockstep, but it is putting our differences together in new and fruitful ways. To be clear, what I'm saying here amounts to a reversal of anything that the right might call solidarity. The solidarity of the right is guided by sameness and by closely guarded racial and even religious identity. Let me say that again. The solidarity of the right is guided by sameness and by closely guarded racial and even religious identities. The solidarity on the left, of the, on the other hand, is guided by experiences of economic exploitation that affect the working majority, but which worsen when they are compounded by race, ethnicity, gender, and sexuality. Significant guidance for solidarity on the left comes therefore for, from those who experience these compounded forms of exploitation and oppression in their own bodies, because they are the ones who truly know what the system is really like. So while solidarity on the right is a top-down phenomenon, solidarity on the left is a phenomenon that moves to the bottom up 
and where we need to take the various forms of oppression in compounded form seriously in a way that we have never done before. Here, finally, the Christian left needs to deepen its theology. Uh, you might think that I haven't talked much about theology in this lecture, but everything I've said is ultimately deeply theological. The ground here is the incarnation of Christ, Jesus becoming human, that teaches us where God is ultimately to be found as well. That's where that theology is rooted, in God becoming human in a common working person, a day laborer in construction, which is basically what Jesus was uh, as he grew up. The solidarity of the right is also theological, of course. It offers a theological justification of the status quo, and it's building on the perennial religion of empire. Christianity, unfortunately, has joined that religion many times, and it still does so today. The solidarity of the left, by contrast, provides the tools to constant transformation, building on the revolutionary religious expressions of Moses, the Hebrew prophets, Jesus, and even a radical Paul whom we are rediscovering today. That's perhaps a bit surprising, but even Paul in his own way has some fairly radical things to say that were lost for a long time because people read Paul as another, as just another empire theologian. So this is perhaps the most important thing of what I have been saying. Not only does the solidarity of the left demand transformation, it also provides the tools for it. In my own work, this is what I have tried to develop with the term deep solidarity. And this is something I would be happy to discuss in the following conversation. So the point here is not only that there is an ethical and moral demand on us uh, to move away from these firing squads. The point is that there is something bigger going on where there are tools for transformation material foundations for solidarity that are already out there and that have been at work throughout history. That's the beauty of the history of the left if we think about it. The United States would not be the same country without the movements we briefly discussed earlier. And I'm sure the same is true in Canada and in many other places. And maybe the same is true even for my own um, home country of, of Germany which uh, in its own way uh, had its developments on the left, even though Christianity oftentimes missed out. So at this point, I want to thank you for your attention, for listening, and I'm looking forward to the following conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm.